Hello and welcome back to Fourth Estate, the media show coming to you live from 2SER Radio on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation and right across Australia on the Community Radio Network. My name's Jack Fisher and it is very good to have you with us for our first show of 2016. Tonight, Alan Jones, How Low Can He Go? This week suggesting the stolen generations are a myth, but that we need more of them. Make sense of that one, if you will. And on a more positive note, writer and broadcaster Stan Grant has signalled his interest in a move to politics. No easy feat for any journalist out there. Joining me in the studio, Alan Clark, Indigenous Affairs reporter for BuzzFeed and a Marawari man from Burke in New South Wales. Welcome back to Fourth Estate for 2016. Thank you for having me. And joining us on the line from Melbourne, Daily Life columnist, author of the Black Feminist Ranter blog, and national Indigenous organiser with the NTEU, our under woman Celeste Little. Welcome to Fourth Estate. Thanks for having me. And also joining us on the line from Melbourne, reporter with Guardian Australia, Carla Warquist. Hi, Carla. Hi, great to be here. Well, Alan Jones hasn't made it six weeks into 2016 without saying something profoundly awful. He probably didn't make it six days, we just weren't listening. But on Monday, Alan made headlines, telling one of his callers that Australia needs more stolen generations. Let's take a listen. When are they going to believe that half the stolen generation were taken for their own protection? Mm, correct. And I get To look that. after them. And and we, we need stolen generations. There are a whole heap of kids going before the courts now, or their families, mums going before the courts and dads, who are on top of the world with drugs or alcohol, and suddenly they go back into an environment where children are brought up in those circumstances. Those children, for their own benefit, should be taken away. Alan Jones has backed up his statement that Australia needs more stolen generations with reference to conservative columnist Andrew Bolt, who believes the stolen generations are a myth. Now, Celeste, you've said before that it's a myth that the stolen generations even ever ended. Can you bring us up to speed here? Well, I guess, I mean, you know, right now we're actually seeing that the rates, um, the rates of children being taken are higher or at their highest than what they have um, been for a very long time and in fact there's um, Aboriginal children right now are 10 times more likely to be taken than any other children from their homes. So, you know, there's been a lot of community organisation trying to actually combat this and his discussions was incredibly ignorant of the actual issue. Celeste, greatly appreciate you joining us from the, uh, the train station there. Alan, what did you make of these comments? The fact of the matter is, you know, to say we need the stolen generations feeds into this uh, myth that somehow Aboriginal children were taken away for their own welfare and he was agreeing with his, his listener who, who, who had that sentiment. Um, the fact of the matter is, is that these people uh, who were taken experienced the most uh, obscene uh, abuse throughout their lives at the hands of the government and church groups. And Alan Jones saying that, um, you know, really feeds into that myth that somehow Aboriginal people are all uh, uh, drug addicts, alcohol addicts, can't look after their children, when in fact we know communities are trying to work really hard from the grassroots up to try and um, help children in those situations. Um, and, you know, in terms of the facts, uh, the stolen generations have never really ended, just like um, just like you were saying earlier. Um, child removals have increased by 400%. And if you can get your head around that, um, then you just need to look at the jump from the 90s to now. It's, it's 
it's in the tens of thousands of that's children the, being removed. That's since the bringing them home report. Since the bringing home report, yeah. And then since 2008, when we had the apology, they've increased 65%, I think. They've increased. I, I, I spent last week in Canberra. I, I was with the Grandmothers Against Removals March and just a continual line of removals that have continued since colonisation. And it is was embodied in that march in Canberra last week. Just fill us in there, sorry, the Grandmothers Against Removals. So, the Grandmothers Against Removals, which is a national sort of collective of, of Aboriginal grandmothers who just have, who most of them are members of the stolen generations themselves who come together and said, this has to stop. Our Aboriginal children need to stop being taken away and put in, in homes or denied their culture because it's an, an basically a new lost generation. So that, that happened last week just on the back of the Closing the Gap report launch. Um, they marched onto the Parliament House forecourt and, um, you know, the sadness and the, you know, that they the sadness that they'd experienced um, and just... Just the way they were able to chart their own removals, their own children's removals, then their grandchildren's removals was just a really stark reminder that we have a really long way to go. Carla, what did you make of uh, the fact that Alan Jones is still on air saying these things? Well, the narrative about removing children for their own protection is um, probably one of the most persistent myths about the stolen generation. You can look up comments that uh, A.O. Neville, who was the chief protector of Aborigines, as they were so called, uh, in Western Australia back in the 30s, he was seen as being one of the architects of this policy. And comments he made, even as far back as 1934, is saying that people were removed for their own protection. He has lines like, "You need to protect people, whether they like it or not." Children were moved because he desired to be satisfied that the conditions surrounding their upbringing were satisfactory. I mean, this narrative that removing children from their families and their cultures is actually a beneficial thing, has been around for an incredibly long time. And you only have to look at the ongoing impact of intergenerational trauma to know that that's really not the case. Now, Celeste, some countries have laws against the denial of their own history in this way, such as Germany with the Holocaust. Where do you think Alan's free speech on this topic should end? <laughs> well, I, I, I'll be brutally honest. Um, I'm not particularly concerned about the free speech of Alan Jones. I hear the argument about free speech come up so often, particularly when these sort of privileged white male right-wing commentators come out with these sorts of views that are factually incorrect, they're downright offensive, and they're designed to be inflammatory. And, you know, I, I kind of think, well, in amongst all of this, with his misrepresentation, where are the... How come he's not promoting the free speech or the actual speech of the people of the stolen generation who his his experiences, he is making such an incredibly... I, I don't know, he's making them into a joke in a way. He's actually mocking what they went through in order to make some sort of weird point. Um, yeah, so... Look, you know, I, I got a lot of um, I got a lot of sort of comments. Oh, he's got a right to an opinion and that. But quite frankly, when that opinion is continually about denying the real sort of history of this country, when it's about downplaying the suffering that a lot of people went through at the hands of, you know, the government by the process of, of colonisation and that, then 
I, I don't have a great deal of sympathy for his right to actually express those opinions, and I'm certainly not going to protect them. I'm going to challenge them. And Celeste is completely right in that. This is uh, just over-the-top, inflammatory, just outrageous sort of tripe. And, and to even trot out Andrew Bolt as a defence is just, you know, mind-boggling. And, and then have Ray Hadley, who is also just known for this kind of stuff, come out and defend, you know, his mate, Alan Jones, and say that Alan only has the interests of Aboriginal children and, and is a benefactor for these sort of philanthropic causes. He's just, um, I, I just, then I just really question what era I'm living in. It feels like I am back, you know, back in the days when we were under the control of the government and we had, you know, these sort of good old white boys looking after the interests of Aboriginal Australians. I mean, it, it, yeah, I mean, I would... Normally, I would not talk about it or give it weight or air, but I just think it was so incredibly insensitive. And what's what's interesting is afterwards, sort of the the amount of people who were saying how incredibly stupid this was from all sectors of society. So if I can find a silver lining, it's that. But, um, you know, it's outrageous, though, that the response wasn't that um, the advertisers pulled their dollars or the sponsors backed out. Unfortunately, it kind of flew under the radar in that respect, um, whereas in the past we'd seen sponsors pull out when he talked about Julie Gillard's dad and stuff. I do think it's on par with that. It's incredibly insensitive, particularly when there are living members of the Stolen Generations who are just completely living, uh, you know, kind of lives that are, that, that are permeated by trauma. Just to further add to it, we get we get so sort of we hear so much about protecting the right to speak for these men who not only have radio shows but usually columns and you know these platforms and they're paid thousands of dollars to rock up to these events and I'm just sort of <laughs> I, I'm not too protective of that and particularly when that is used to harm over and over again I think that we need to speak strongly against it. Celeste, we understand that the uh, ACMA, the Australian Communications Media Authority, has received some complaints over Alan Jones' comments, and it'll be a couple of months before they're in a position to act on that if the station already hasn't. Do you accept that it's the best way to resolve these issues is through sponsor boycotts and a change to the culture, a change to Alan's listenership? Do you expect that he'll just uh, fade away at some point, or do you expect something uh, more decisive to be done about it? He's never going to fade away. The likes of him are never going to fade away. I mean, if he was able to make the comments he did and be found guilty of inciting um, violence and vilification when it came to the Cronulla riots, and he's still here 10 years down the track, um, if he can make comments about um, Julia Gillard's father dying of shame and he's still here, then he's going to continue to still be here. So... I think on one hand, the sponsor sort of boycotts are good because they hit at the um, hip pocket and they threaten, the, they threaten the financial structures of these institutions that promote the sorts of voices like, um, like Jones's. But, yeah, at the end of the day, I think that, you know, people like him are very much representative of the dominant power paradigms within this country, the privileged white men who run the media and the fact that, you know, the rest of us are left chipping away at it. Um, 
and chipping away at some really horrible stuff if we want to actually start changing some perceptions. Carla, let's hear from you on this because the diet of shame controversy, that ended up costing Allen Station one and a half million dollars. Now, if an attack on the Prime Minister can bring about that, then where are the boycotts three days after Allen's made these comments calling for the forcible removal of Aboriginal children from their families? Well, I think part of that was really about the reaction to these comments. I mean, it was a case that it was pretty widely just discounted as just Alan Jones being Alan Jones. He has a history of making these kind of comments about Indigenous people. And I think um, although we still talk about him a lot, his uh, cultural currency has kind of dropped off. It's not, um, it's no longer shocking, I think, when Alan Jones does something like this. It's just Alan Jones. And so I think that could be behind some of the um, slightly different response to it. And to be honest, it could also just be that everyone, there was quite a sensitive um, political environment around Julie Gillard and that was such sort of a strong comment that a lot of people felt almost personally attacked by it. And it's quite a sad uh, indictment on the state of affairs in Australia, but it could just be the case that a lot of companies don't necessarily feel that their brand will be as damaged by Alan Jones making a racist comment as it was by Alan Jones making a sexist comment about the then Prime Minister. Alan, you were talking a little bit before about the grandmothers against removals down in uh, Canberra very recently. Uh, in fact, they're a, they're a year ago, I believe, when Seven Sunrise and Nines Today were camped outside Parliament House just near the Aboriginal tent embassy as they waited for a Liberal leadership spill that actually didn't happen at the time. They were there by coincidence and there were these 100 protesters there trying to bring attention to the fact that the number of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children in out-of-home care has risen by 65% since that apology and yet they were completely ignored by channels 9 and 7. Even if the mainstream media is prepared to call out Alan Jones on comments like these, are they actually doing justice to the stolen generations in their own right? You know, I'm not surprised that they were ignored. I watched that. I remember it very clearly and I just thought, oh, this is kind of, you know, a bit too much. I mean, you have protesters right behind you. It's getting louder and no one's even acknowledging them. But, um, you know... Even the mainstream media talking about um, Alan Jones has been lacking. I mean, I haven't seen much coverage about his comments on mainstream media, to be honest. It's mostly sort of lived online. And I've noticed since that, that Sunrise and Today incident in Canberra that, uh, you know, well, obviously there's always, there's never really been a space for Indigenous affairs objectively reported on mainstream television um, in the past year, I think online media has taken that up. So I have seen a huge swing in terms of public interest, but deriving from online um, and, and in particular social media. So just speaking with, uh, you know, the Grandmothers Against Removals um, organisers in Canberra, and they were, they were telling me about how much more involved they are on, say, Facebook and how much support they've, they're, they're getting, whereas, say, a year ago their really only hope was to go and try and get on a mainstream television station, try and get in the papers, whereas now this sort of social media, the power of social media has really sort of been delivered to them and they're, they're utilising that to the best effect. And I think a good example of that is the rise of, say, The Guardian's Indigenous Affairs, which is, which is quite solid, BuzzFeed's investment in that, daily life, all of these you know, we're all here on your show. Um, 
and really watching that drive and dictate then mainstream media, often the ABC, I would say, or um, or other online publications, not so much commercial networks like seven, nine, or ten. But I mean, that in itself is is showing the groundswell that's starting to happen. So the Alan Jones things was interesting. We picked it up very early on that morning. Um, someone had messaged me saying, oh, did you hear this? Uh, and I said, no. So we waited for the podcast and we saw it and just, you know, incredibly shocked by it. So we just put it out there very quickly. And yeah, two days later, it was like all over the place, which is really um, interesting to see and to see how other outlets reported it. But in terms of getting people's message out there, I think people don't rely so much on that, you know, television mainstream anymore or, you know, pandering to mainstream newspapers. You're listening to Fourth Estate on 2SER. You're with me, Jack Fisher, and I'm speaking to Alan Clark, Celeste Little and Carla Walklist. Now, one special thing that happened to an Australian journalist over the summer happened to Sky News anchor and Guardian Indigenous Affairs uh, editor, I think, now Stan Grant. Uh, Stan gave a speech last year, uh, which many of you will have heard, in which he says that racism is killing the Australian dream. And the video of that speech has since been viewed close to two million times. Some have even compared Stan's speech to a Martin Luther King Jr. moment. Others say Stan's just saying what other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have been saying for quite some time now. Celeste, what did you think of Stan's speech? Look, I think that you can't actually take away from Stan Grant what a fantastic orator he is and um, and how how his speech managed to appeal to a lot of people. Um, yeah, I, I do agree that a lot of um, a lot of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have been saying a lot of very similar things for a long time. I guess the the thing that I take out of it is that one Stan's got the profile that he does. He's been a very successful media person for a long time. He's tended to be seen um, probably within the community more than externally as walking a very sort of um, moderate middle ground. And it's it was kind of like a massive truth bomb for a lot of the people who would usually watch him and not think anything of what he was doing bar just reporting stuff. So I think that his speech actually probably appealed to different people than what, some, you know, if I was to get up and start ranting or a lot of other people who who are known for speaking around the traps were to get up and start ranting. He's seen more as that sort of middle voice and he was really using that um, to educate a broader people, and he spoke so much from the heart. So, yeah, I can't take away from that. I had my criticisms a little part of the speech, but we've always got those. <laughs> well, yeah, he's certainly a, an incredible orator, Colour. He's been a, a great asset to The Guardian. Do you agree with Celeste's categorisation there that he's uh, appealing to the middle, appealing to everyone? I think he's very deliberately not speaking to Aboriginal people in, in environments like that. He is speaking for himself and to some degree for his people, although he is always very, usually very, very careful not to try and, you know, represent an Aboriginal people as an amorphous mass that he represents. But in speeches like that and in a lot of his columns for Guardian Australia, what he's really doing is, you know, taking you by the hand and saying, look, you may not realise what this is like, but this is what this is like for me and this is what this is like for members of my family and, and members of my community. So, but I, I agree with Celeste. I mean, he's such a fantastic speaker. Um, everything 
that he says just came across as so much passion and so much feeling. It was um, pretty extraordinary to watch. And he has also come out since then and said, look, don't compare me to Martin Luther King. So many other people have done this. And he's you know, listed people like William Cooper, people like Jack Patton, like people like Charlie Perkins. And he said, these are the people that you should be looking to if you're looking for Australia's Martin Luther King moment. What I'm doing is telling you what I think about what's happening in our country right now. Earlier this month, Stan's revealed that he's considering entering politics, but it's an idea he says has no flesh on the bone just yet. Alan, what do you think? Do you think as a journalist, for him to want to go into politics, that he needs to hang up his hat as a journalist? I think I read somewhere where Stan said that, well, you know, going into politics, he would love to keep doing what he does in regards to the media. I mean, Stan is a consummate media person. He's an amazing orator. He's a great reporter. He gets in there, I think a whole career in politics would be wasted on him, to be honest. Um, I think he would make a lot more of a change or difference, say, for Australia outside of that or lobbying or advocating for different issues or causes. But um, at the same time, um, you know, and when he was asked what party, you know, kind of would he lean towards, he he said well, none of them really appealed to them, appealed to him. So, you know, running as an independent or something like that, maybe. But I, I, I just can't, I can't picture it as much as people want it and how amazing would it be. I just think that Stan would be uh, much better off sort of in the media doing something he loves, but also advocating. He has the platform. The speech goes to show how, what an incredible sort of asset he is to the Australian um, media landscape and the community as a whole. I mean, that was, I remember I watched that. So when it happened in October online and, and sort of it didn't peak, obviously sort of flare up until January um, after Mike Carlton called it a Martin Luther King moment and then everyone went a bit crazy for it. But as he said, you know, don't call me Martin Luther King. I agree with that. You know, we have some incredible trailblazers in the Aboriginal community that, you know, um, if you're going to compare someone to, compare it, compare him to those. Um, it'd be interesting to see, but I think for a journalist to go into politics is... Um, is incredibly difficult because all your life as well, particularly if you're a mainstream journalist, that, you know, you're, you know, you've spent your life trying to be objective and then you go in and, well, we all look at like Peter Garrett and it's just kind of a former shell of him, him, his self and his own um, politics, you know, pre-politics, if that makes sense. Um, and then being beaten down by a large party and eventually, well, what drive are you really changing? So... Um, I don't see it happening. Yeah, Celeste, many people felt quite let down, I think, by Peter Garrett, and Aboriginal people were certainly among them. Do you think Stan's supporters are ready to stick by him uh, if he has to sort of grapple with the reality of Australian politics? Uh, I think, I mean, you know, politics is a pretty, uh, for one of a a different term, it's a pretty dirty game. And I think that, you know, to get into it, you have to have an incredibly thick, I think that he has an incredibly thick skin because he has been in the public eye for such a very long time. But the additional layers that he's going to have to absorb, which is that, you know, he will undoubtedly be called on to um, the Indigenous voice. Like we see the Indigenous politicians currently in there doing um, already to a certain extent. You know, that 
that's a that's a fair bit of pressure. I I mean, I think he's up to it if he wants to go for it. Um, the one thing that I support more than anything, more than him necessarily getting into politics or anything else, is that we do need a lot more Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in politics from a variety of um, political sort of opinions, spectrums, whatever else. And there's no reason why I don't see he could fill it. It's just whether he whether he would actually want to at the end of the day. And I I wouldn't want to. So, you know, I, I think yeah. it's a tough dig. Yeah. Color, I'm, uh, I'm thinking of uh, Maxine McHugh, the former 7.30 host, who ousted John Howard in her uh, seat in 2007. Then she only lasted one term as a Labour MP. And her critic, Peter Costello, said her short political career shows just how harder it is to do than it is to pontificate. Do you think Stan knows what he's in for? Well, I mean, a huge number of Labour MPs lost their seat in 2010. That was quite a big swing away from the government. And she also got in in the biggest swing toward Labor. So I don't think you can, I don't think we can discount that when we talk about the fact that she lasted one term. And we have other former uh, journalists such as Tony Abbott and Malcolm Turnbull. So it's not necessarily a career which is at odds with being a successful politician. I think that Stan knows exactly what he's doing. Um, he kind of floated that balloon of an idea on Q&A. I don't know what his plans are. Since then, I haven't spoken to him about it, but I'm sure that if he did decide to nominate for pre-selection with whatever party or as an independent, that he would have thought through all the pros and cons. He's, you know, he's, he's a very, very experienced um, operator in the media and he would be very, very aware of all of the risks of going into politics. And, of course, we had people like... Um, Noel Pearson recently saying that he wished that at 35 he had gone into politics. He said he'd reached the limit of what he could do from the outside and he really should have decided to run for public office back when he was 35. I mean, maybe there is some merit to looking at, well, do you need to be inside the system to change it? That's all we've got time for this week on Fourth Estate. Thanks to my guests Celeste Little, Calla Walquist and Alan Clark. Don't forget you can subscribe to Fourth Estate on iTunes or SoundCloud or your podcast player of choice. And of course you can find us on Twitter and Facebook and at 2ser.com. My name's Jack Fisher and you can catch us at the same time next week. <laughs>